The Talkin' Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. The Golf Society is founded on the belief that the latest golf trends, fashion and concepts shouldn't be compromised, but shared with every golfer. Shop online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 25th and final episode of 2019 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Before we start on today's show, I want to again express my gratitude. When I started this podcast in January of this year, I had no idea how many of you would tune in. At best, I thought maybe a hundred people might listen, but in my wildest dreams, I couldn't have imagined the audience would be in the thousands. I might have expected listeners from the United States, Great Britain, Australia, and Ireland, but I am shocked when I see the stats on where you tune in from all around the world. So from my little corner of the world to yours, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Today's show is a bit different than the past 24 episodes because today we are celebrating the anniversary of the founding of the USGA 125 years ago. This podcast was designed to be released on December 22, 2019, as a birthday present to the USGA. So from the Society of Golf Historians, happy birthday, USGA. I am so happy to announce our special guest for today's show, Senior Historian at the USGA, Victoria Neno. As the Senior Historian of the United States Golf Association, Victoria oversees the Golf Museum's research, scholarship initiatives, interprets golf history for diverse audiences, and increasing accessibility to, and interest in, artifacts, library materials, and stories through programming, publications, and content. Victoria has been associated with the USGA since 2001. She interned at the museum that year and represented the USGA on-site at the 2012 and 2013 U.S. Opens and joined the staff full-time as a junior historian in 2014. Victoria has an undergraduate degree in history from Williams College and was a four-year starter and captain of the Williams women's golf team. As a side note, she played her high school golf at Dr. Alistair McKenzie Sharp Park, which you can learn more about on episode 21 of this very podcast. Victoria, thank you so much for joining the 25th and final episode of the 2019 of 2019 of the Talking Golf History podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Connor. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I tell you that the timing of this talk couldn't be any better with the USGA celebrating their 125th anniversary. Let me be the first to wish the USGA a happy birthday. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> you bet. Um, you know, a lot of our folks, I, I, I'm sure everyone knows that there's a USGA museum, uh, but I thought since you're a pivotal part of that, a senior historian within the museum, maybe you could walk our listeners through what you do for the USGA. 
Sure. Well, a little bit about the museum in general. You know, we preserve and celebrate golf history. Um, we're stewards uh, of the history of the game, and we care for the world's most comprehensive collection of golf golf history. And that means, you know, seventy thousand artifacts cataloged, a million photographs, a hundred thousand items in our library, and over two hundred thousand hours of footage. So. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot to care for. And our staff is, you know, entirely committed to preserving this sort of amazing history of the game at the highest standards and sharing it with everyone. Um, so a little bit about what I do is I, um, I'm a senior historian, so I generally provide historical context for organizational initiatives and decision making. You know, the USGA is a governing body and we make a lot of really important decisions. And the way to sort of get it right or get it as right as you possibly can is to look at a holistic view of every single issue. And that means historical context. So I do a lot of research, um, put together a lot of reports. Um, and then, you know, we also create this um, sort of amazing innovative exhibits that um, promote the USJ's commitment to inclusion, accessibility, sustainability in the game, these sort of hot button issues that um, are really important to golfers now. And we create content for industry publications. Um, we respond to thousands of historical in inquiries every single year. Um, yeah, I'm sorry about all those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, people are creative. Man, the questions that you know people wanna know the answers to are awesome. And it's great to see that interest. And we absolutely you know, love serving people and solving what we call history mysteries on a daily basis. So it's a really fun job. I love that. Um, let me ask, like, how do you go about recording and preserving our history? Maybe you could give an example of something that we've done. Maybe it's an artifact, and how do you preserve it over time? Sure. Well, um, one thing that you know will will come into play in our conversation. Uh, later is just let's let's take the you know 1894 minutes of the association for example you know they're a handwritten piece of paper in beautiful script um, you know preserved in our library that share the you know exact um, you know notes of what happened at that initial meeting on December 22nd 1894 and this is something that's preserved at the highest standards in our library um, and you know is able to then be be celebrated for years to come. Yeah, it's kind of our um, declaration of independence, isn't it? In, in a one <laughs> yeah, <word> definitely. <laughs> so when when was the USGA Museum founded? And and, and I guess to the second part of that is, you know, I, I, it's probably obvious, but why? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, it's a really fun story. You know, as uh, Joe Dye tells it, he was the USGA executive director for 35 years. Um uh, he sort of describes it as this executive committee member, uh, George W. Blossom Jr. Um, he was on a holiday in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and he um, came across a framed invitation to sort of a golf uh, party, a golf club ball, um, some sort of event that had occurred, um, you know, in the late 1700s. Because Charleston, ha Charleston has this great, um, you know, early golf history, and he thought to himself, "Well, the USGA should." preserve the history of the game. This is something that's of interest and of benefit to all golfers and will be forever. So um, he brings it to the USGA. They um, are very much behind it. And, you know, in January 1936, uh, the USGA decides there's absolutely no more room in the sort of 
two two room headquarters that they have on 42nd Street, and um, they need to find more space for not only their operations but also for a museum that's going to you know serve the game for um, the rest of its future. Um, so yeah, so then they basically um, they find a new space. Um, they start collecting items. There's this amazing outpouring from past champions. Um, Bob Jones donates Calamity Jane. Um, Beatrix Hoyt donates um, some artifacts. Same with Walter Hagen, Margaret Curtis, Jean Sarazen. Herb and Joe Graffis donate 25,000 photographs that they'd used for their magazines. Um, and you see this sort of outpouring of interest from the golf community in preserving our shared history um, for the future of the game. And so that's kind of the start of the USJ Museum. Yeah. So for our listeners who've never walked through the museum, where, where is it yeah. and what can they find? Well, great question. Um, well, you should definitely visit <laughs> anyone out there. Um, we're located in Liberty Corner, New Jersey. We're in this beautiful uh, John Russell Pope home um, out in sort of the uh, horse country of New Jersey. Um, and it's at the global headquarters of the USGA. Um, and what you'll find there um, is an incredible selection of these amazing moments and amazing stories in golf's past, um, notably items like, you know, Bob Jones collection, Mickey Wright's collection, um, Ben Hogan's collection, you know, Ben Hogan's one iron. Um, then there are items that sort of speak to the cultural impact of golf. We have, you know, the moon club, which Alan Shepard used to hit a golf ball in the moon, um, in 1971. Um, it, it tells the story of the history of golf in America, but also tells the story of sort of great champions and great moments in our shared history as golfers. And my favorite room in the museum has to be the Hall of Champions, which displays the name of every USJ champion along with our official and original um, USJ trophies. And that's a really special place. Yeah, I bet. I, 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 that's, <laughs> let me ask you this. So if someone's just been to the museum and let's call it the last five years, um, do you, you sure. change out the exhibits all the time? How does that go about? So we definitely have special rotating exhibits that are on sort of more, um, topical subjects. Um, so right now we have um, a great special exhibit on golf course architecture as art. Um, in the past, we've had exhibits on um, the African-American contributions to the game, um, women in golf course architecture. You'll see those switched out basically on an annual basis or to every two years. Um, additionally, we have, you know, rotating exhibits that are sort of smaller that feature artifacts that are, you know, new acquisitions or items from the collection that aren't often on display. I think it's close to 10% of our collection is on display in the museum and the rest is in collection storage. So, um, we have an amazing opportunity to share these sort of really rare artifacts that either can't be on display for a long period of time for your preservation reasons or, um, you know, don't fit into the, the general sort of overview of American golf history, but are really important nonetheless. So if you haven't been there recently, you haven't seen the mm -hmm. museum. Yeah, if you, yeah, definitely. There's always something new to see for sure. And, you know, it's hard to kind of go through the museum in an hour or two hours. You really, you know, to really take in everything. I mean, you certainly can and enjoy yourself, but um, it's worth a second visit. Absolutely. I, I've got a listener question here from uh, Matthew Keller. Uh, Matthew would like to understand what resources the USGA might have available only through in-person research versus digital searchable online research? 
That's a great question. And, you know, the museum and library, like any other museum and library, is going through um, the sort of process of this transformation to the 21st century. You know, not every item can be digitized. But um, one of the great things that's accessible to people anywhere through our website is the library catalog. Um, this, you know, you can search for any book, any subject, um, and be able to have a full run of whatever we have there. You know, that doesn't mean that we have the full text searchable or full text available online, but you can email our librarian um, and she will absolutely be able to, you know, make selections for you and, and send you digital materials and things like that. Um, then available digitally, we have what's called the Siegel Periodical Library, and that is a selection of fully digitized books and periodicals um, that sort of span uh, the early, um, early eight, I would say 1890s to sort of 1930s. Um, and those are fully text searchable. So you can, you know, really dive in deep to sort of topics of the early 20th century of golf. That's my but, favorite, by the way, that's my favorite period. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, early golf. I just, I totally. love early golf, love early golf. I, um, I am absolutely in a hundred percent agreement with yeah, you. <laughs> so much fun. I mean, it's just so rugged, mm -hmm. right? I mean, just, a lot of things aren't defined and just weird stuff going on in these quirky courses that, you know, most people don't have any information about and you just dig up some real gems in that stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's full of characters and, oh, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, pioneers who are trying to sort of make their way and shape the future of golf. And so it's really interesting. There's like less precedent in what American golf should be. And so you kind of have this creative landscape for people to test things out and try new things. So how does the museum go about sharing our collective history? Do you have any initiatives within the museum that you can share with us? Yeah, definitely. Well, one, of course, is going to be through our exhibits on site. Um, other things that we do, you know, a lot of times host clubs will celebrate sort of important milestones in their history and invite us to come along and either speak or bring artifacts. And that's a great way to sort of say, look at how we're preserving your history with you and celebrating it with you. That's um, one thing that we love to do. Um, another thing is, you know, we bring artifacts to our championships. Um, and that's a great way to connect people who are on site experiencing history in the making with the history that's shaped that championship. Um, so like this year at the U.S. Open, we will have a full tent, um, you know, filled with sort of an interactive experience as well as some really amazing artifacts from the collection. Um, so that's kind of something coming down the pipe that's really exciting. Um, and then another way that's not so, you know, we haven't we haven't been able to, um, we're kind of in the process of working on basically is an African-American newspaper archive. Um, and we have, uh, an amazing employee going through, um, early African-American newspapers and collecting any mention of golf. So you can really understand the African-American perspective on the game, oh, um, so through cool. these sort of, yes, through these formative years. And so that's something that we're looking to make accessible to the public in the near future. Um, but we're in the collection process. And so these are, you know, those are disparate ways of sharing and celebrating our history. Um, but, um, they're all really great and things that we're super excited about. Oh, I just think that's fantastic. Especially the African-American experience. I mean, you know, we could obviously go into like Dr. Grant and the invention, of the tea and all those things, but mm -hmm. I, I just fascinating. Um, and for you folks at home, uh, I think you might know this if you follow on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, um, that I'm, I'm working on a new segment for the show called Memories from the Museum. So if you're interested in the USGA's special collections, uh, we may be discussing a few of those in 2020. Hopefully, Victoria will join us for those shows, too. Awesome. 
Okay, Looking forward so, to those. <laughs> yeah, let's jump into life before the USGA. So not getting into early golf tournaments. Uh, what was golf like in the USA prior to the establishment of the USGA? Yes, and I think the one defining sentence for that is golf in America is relatively new. That sort of defines the landscape pre, you know, 1894. Um, you know, documents and newspapers confirm that there were early variations of the game um, that had know, come through um, American seaports sort of around the 1770s, 1780s, 1790s, Charleston, Savannah, New York City. Um, but those don't really catch on. Um, you know, the War of 1812 sort of uh, creates different economic and, and social factors that sort of lead to the golf kind of slipping away for several generations. Um, and then you get at the dawn of the 20th century, this incredible boom um, of popularity for golf. Um, you know, the number of golf courses increases from fewer than 50 in 1894 to over a thousand by 1900. Um, Americans were craving knowledgeable instructors. They were craving talented players, experienced club makers. Um, so you have, um, sort of an influx of young men from golf rich towns like Carnoustie or Dornick or St. Andrews, and they immigrate to America, immigrate to America through New York city, um, and sort of share their culture, um, share their their sport with Americans. Um, but everyone is really learning the game for the first time. Um, so that's kind of the landscape, uh, just generally. So what, what do you think the rules were prior to, you know, uh, 1894 and the establishment of the USJ? I mean, how, how do you think, was it, were they using rules from the RNA or was it just kind of an archaic form of the game where, I'm sure a lot of the people in the United States had never played golf prior. I mean, I think we know that there were some mm -hmm. really bad golf going on right back then. But were <laughs> yeah. they were they just kind of playing the game how they thought it would be played, or was the RNA ever present? Or what? what do you, how do you think that was handled back then? I mean, I don't think we know, but I'm just curious. So that's actually a great question, and we have um, a pretty good um, good grasp on the sort of uh, existing rules or at least existing understanding of the rules at that time. So basically, you know, the RNA in the 1890s, 1880s, you have some consistency abroad um, in Europe with the rules. Um, you know, by 1890, the acceptance of the RNA rules becomes standard of the United Kingdom. Um, and so, you know, the British Open had been played under the rules of the RNA from like 1881 on. Um, so you have some sort of standardization there. There's an understanding. But really, there is a sense that individual clubs, as golf expands, need to make their own rules to govern play in their individual you know, places. Golf is going to exotic locations that aren't just the seaside links of Scotland. Um, so you can imagine they're coming across a lot of different um, possible situations that your golf ball can get into. Um, so, you know, there is an understanding that the the RNA rules is sort of set in in Europe, at least, or at least in United Kingdom. But in the in the US, you're right, there's a little bit more confusion around it. Um, basically, what you have are these, you know, Scottish and English professionals coming over, and they're sort of helping um, 
helping transfer that knowledge uh, about the RNA rules, but about sort of the rules that they grew up with to the people that they're teaching. Um, yeah, so it so, might not even you know, be rules that the RNA had published in the mid 1890s. I mean, if they're moving over in the 1880s and they start establishing a golf course, it might have just been the local rules of Carnoustie. Yeah, exactly. It kind of depended on what the sort of what the individual club decided um, as their rules. Um, there's a great uh, there's a great quote that I came across where, you know, there are all these articles in American newspapers saying, you know, describing the game of golf, describing the They're general hilarious, rules. aren't they? Some of them are They're, hilarious. Yeah. They're really basic and, you know, the terminology isn't always correct, but they're trying really hard. Um, but, you know, they say something like nearly all Scotchmen know the game and and some sort of person, you know, can basically be found anywhere. And, you know, one one of those people will definitely you can depend upon to teach you with sort of enthusiastic pleasure, his great national game. So, you know, it basically said, grab someone from Scotland, ask them about the game of golf and, you know, go from there. And so you have these sort of main, more storied, uh, well-established clubs, and we'll get to those clubs, um, I'm sure, later in our conversation. But they have sort of a basic understanding of the rules. And, you know, John Reed at St. Andrews um, in Yonkers, he uses the St. Andrews rules. And so you you see the, the different sort of codes that are applied, but it's not formal in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I just I, I, I saw one uh, newspaper article that was essentially saying it's men with sticks hitting rocks. I mean, they, they had like no <laughs> it was in the Midwest, too. So it was like very early on just, yeah, uh, you know, just an odd. I, I, I You can imagine if someone's playing some weird game out with I don't know back then I, I suppose it'd be in the future with lasers or something you're trying to man uses <laughs> light to move sphere you know it's that just right. the way they would translate that into what they saw into print was absolutely hilarious to me to totally I mean sometimes you'll have an article that will show um it'll say like a you know a not a typical golf course, but basically it'll say, this is what a golf course could look like. You could lay this out anywhere and it will show, you know, a line and a circle green, and then it will have like place hazard here. And it will be like a giant pile of stones and it, that'll be published in a newspaper as if, you know, you could go out in your backyard and create a championship level golf course or. Sounds like you know. a lot of the public <laughs> Just, courses I played when I was a kid, they must've been laid out around I, 1893. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It was, it was it, very rudimentary when you consider, you know, our golfing experience today. Sure. Totally different. So you mentioned these a little bit, the, the pre-USJ clubs, the oldest possibly being Harleston Links in Charleston. And then, of course, there was a Savannah Golf Club, which isn't the Savannah of today, uh, which have histories going back to the 1700s. Do we have any inkling why, why these clubs failed? I think you mentioned 1812. I'd heard a theory about a trade embargo that was enforced by Thomas Jefferson with the UK, which may have killed off any transportation of golf clubs, balls, etc. Have you seen anything about that? Yeah, I have definitely come across um, how trade embargoes and sort of strained relations with the British essentially caused, you know, there's no way to import golf clubs or golf balls. Plus, you know, people aren't necessarily concerned with, you know, games when you're sort of feuding with the country that has brought this over. So, yeah, I definitely think that 
at least what I've come across is the War of 1812 and sort of strained American-British relations and all the sort of things that come along with that, trade embargoes um, uh, especially, certainly influenced golf sort of disappearing for several generations. So the man who gave us liberty took away our Mm -hmm. golf privileges. Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) folks, you heard it here. No longer our favorite president. If you're a golfer, you're against him. Go for tap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you want an enthusiastic golf supporter, definitely go with Taft. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's jump forward 100 years. Uh, We're in the 1870s, 1880s. They seem to be a pivotal era for golf catching on in North America. We have Royal Montreal in Canada, which is established in 1873. We've got this quirky golf course by Andrew Bell in Davenport, or I'm sorry, Burlington, Iowa in 1881. Oakhurst Links, 84. Dorset in 86, and then most notably St. Andrews in New York in 1888. So within a decade, we have golf clubs really expanding across the Northeast and a little bit into the Midwest. Do we know what led to that growth? Um, You know, I think that it's, um, it's people of Scottish and British descent or people who had interacted with the game abroad. Um, who see its merits, who find it entertaining, and they, you know, bring it back to their everyday lives. I mean, that's certainly where you see the rise in sort of the New York area. Are these, um, you know, well-established men and women who travel abroad and go on vacation places um, like France, um, Biarritz, Pa, and they um, um, they come across golf and they enjoy it and they bring it back home and they import, you know professionals to assist them in integrating that into their lives. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's how you see it. And I I would assume that even in those sort of remote and interesting areas, there are also people from those same sort of backgrounds or experiences that that bring those back to their towns. Yeah. And I'm thinking off the top of my head, I could be wrong, too. But I'm thinking it's also we had we were in a prolonged period of peace, uh, you know, following the uh, the Civil War. And along with that, just the some of the the early industrialization of agriculture and business. I wonder if that just helped free up time. I think that's got to be a huge part of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, The Industrial Revolution and all the things that come along with that, both in terms of the amount of leisure time that people have and sort of – social mores, um, changing, um, all of that, uh, really impacts the growth of the country club and the growth of the golf club. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to see how cultural history, um, is so tied into the sort of beginnings of golf in America. You know, you find people that have, you know, in America, you don't have these sort of leisurely like British estates, like you have, um, you know, in the place where we've come from. So where is your place to sort of recreate and where is your place to host people and entertain? Maybe not potentially your home because maybe you're not landed gentry. Maybe that is a country club. Um, you know, so that becomes, you know, either through horse racing, especially, or fox hunting. Um, these are the sort of clubs that begin, um, to adapt, you know, adopt golf as um, another pastime, another offering for their their memberships. It's really interesting. Yeah, and I think people should notice that too. And you made mention of it is the whole idea the the quote unquote country club didn't start off with golf. 
mean, it was very much no. a country club. It was in the country. It had hunting and horse racing and shooting. It wasn't how we, you know, put in a bucket the word country club as to be golf, recreational, private club. Yeah, definitely. There were a variety of activities and a variety of activities and offerings and meals and potentially, you know, places to stay because you'd travel out in your carriage and, you know, it might be quite a ways. And it was totally, totally different from what we view now. And it's interesting to see how much golf changes in the subsequent decades after that, you know, from the 1880s to the 1920s, you have a totally different golf experience. And you have a lot of country clubs that are specifically founded to be, you know, only golf. Um, And how that sort of that 1920s, 1930s version of golf sort of carries through to how we experience golf today. So in 1894, you know, from an organizational standpoint, was perhaps the most pivotal year in the United States for golf history anyway. Um, in I 1894, would say so. Yeah, right. In 1894, <laughs> three golf national championships were held in the fall. Two of them were called national amateur championships. And there was a championship that some were referring to as the first national, or United States national championship or open championship. Can you talk about these tournaments, these early tournaments, these pre-USGA tournaments and how they may have helped shape the events of December 22nd, 1894. Absolutely. So you see at this time in 1894, there start to be a few few clubs that really come into prominence. You have Newport. um, And again, this is a town that's fully, you know, it's a summer, it's a summer town of summer activities. They have boat racing and tennis and all sorts of activities. It's um, a a vacation spot for the wealthy and golf becomes sort of a natural extension of that. Um, So Newport Golf Club is one of them. Um, You have St. Andrews, which is a well-established, you know, very much purely golf club um, founded by John Reed, who is Scottish through and through. And he's just a fantastic personality in history um, who loves his culture and celebrates it um, all the time in many different ways. And so you have St. Andrews there as well. Um, You have Shinnecock, which arguably at the time, you know, people say it's the best links um, in America. Um, They have a a, a very strong and active membership. Women are really, really heavily involved there. Yeah. First um, women's course that was dedicated for women. Was it Shinnecock? Yeah. Yeah. And one with, um, a really, uh, forward minded sort of, uh, approach to that, which is awesome. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have, um, you know, Chicago golf club is up and coming, um, supposedly the first 18 hole golf course in the United States. Um, you also have places like tuxedo Essex. Um, and, and these courses are all hosting tournaments. They are inviting other players to play, you know, what they want is to bring, um, they want to have interesting matches. Interclub matches are starting to really become a thing and people love to go and watch them. They love to participate in them. Um, and you know, these clubs send out invitations to either other clubs or neighboring, you know, neighboring golf, um, you know, entities or golfers, and they sort of host these different tournaments that are happening. And what happens in 1894 is you have, um, a, you know, two prominent clubs, you have Newport and St. Andrews who both 
decree that they are hosting sort of a national championship, um, either a national amateur championship or a national open championship. Um, you know, the names are all sort of slightly different, <laughs> um, um, but they all sort of offer trophies or medals, um, and they say they sort of open the invitation a little bit wider, and um, yeah, and so that's that's what happens. You have two contests for supposedly the national title, um, and obviously some confusion ensues. <laughs> yeah, and and I, I love this part. Of, I mean, this little tidbit of the history. So the the first quote unquote pre USGA USA Amateur held at uh, Newport. Um, the local amateur William Lawrence beats Charles Blair McDonald. So they hold a second one at St. Andrews for the amateur again. And Lawrence Stoddard beats Charles Blair McDonald in the finals. So was Lawrence like, it was the name Lawrence like McDonald's kryptonite? I mean, he must have hated that name in 1894 because he had a first name and a last name. And both came in second totally. to both. So what's really interesting is um, the Newport Championship is contested and McDonald, you know, it, this is a more famous story. I would say, you know, McDonald, he hits it into a wall one or two times. He then hits it into a road. He's, you know, has a penalty assigned to him. Here. Yeah, exactly. You know, and he shoots, you know, some sort of, he loses by one stroke. Um, but, you know, he's obviously disappointed as any, you know, blue blooded Chicagoan golfer would be. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's upset about it, but at the same time, prior to that result, the St. Andrews golf club had already sent out this invitation. So you don't see the second tournament at St. Andrews as a result of McDonald's sort of, um, argument that, you know, the rules by which this was played in no way, you know, shape or form can be an actual, actual national championship. You know, one, it wasn't played at match play, you know, two, you know, the rules are only agreed upon by one club. It's not actually, you know, you can't speak for the collective body of golfers. And so, um, then he tries again, of course, at, um, at St. Andrews. And this story is actually really hilarious. If you don't mind no, indulging please. me. Absolutely. You go okay. right in. Okay, great. So, um, McDonald, you know, he's from, he's from Chicago, but I guess he has a place up in New York. And so he's not that far, but he comes down for the tournament and he plays in it the first day. And that night his, um, his friend Stanford white hosts him at his home and they stay up until five in the morning drinking, um, uh, most likely drinking, you know, having a good time, eating, chatting, whatever, not thinking about the championship. You know, yeah, because he's going to win it. Right. I mean, he, was, he knew he was going to win it. <laughs> he's, he's a confident man. So he's probably not too concerned, but you know, at five o'clock in the morning, he has to go home and then he has a breakfast appointment and his friend picks him up. He goes to the breakfast and then he, you know, plays his morning round. I guess Stanford, I think it's Stanford white that gives him some sort of like medication to help his sort of headache or keep him awake. Um, he played, he plays the afternoon round and at lunch, apparently Horace Hutchinson had published an article, um, or in some, it, it's listed in one of his books, something like this, that he says, you know, the golfer that fortifies himself with beefsteak and champagne at lunch is the one you want to bet on. Oh, he, no, you know, I saw that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Right. So, so, um, 
Stanford White again comes into the picture and he says, McDonald, you know, we've got to have this lunch and he orders steak and he orders champagne and McDonald goes out and he, you know, he loses. I mean, how could you possibly? To the nobody. To the nobody. (laughs) To the nobody. I mean, Bob Jones has this same problem, you know, early on in his career where he eats like ice cream at lunch and then loses the championship. I mean, you know, to all the golfers out there, just keep it light. Get a granola bar. A banana, something, you know, something responsible. But anyway, so he loses again. And um, yeah, that but that in itself, those two sort of hilarious events of McDonald, you know, not being successful, despite his sort of consistent, excellent play, um, you know, prior, just like don't it's not the cause of the founding of the association, but it's certainly it drums up some excitement. It drums up another argument. It definitely, it definitely impacts it, but it's not the, it's not the root cause of why the USG is founded in 1894. And, and why? I, first of all, I love those stories. Uh, I truly did. The other yeah. complaint he had is that uh, there is no business for a wall to be built on a golf course that was at St Andrews, <laughs> which the original nine had walls going all the way through it. And I guess I, you, you could kick back with while North Berwick never, you know, held an open, but Mirfield <laughs> certainly did. And it had a wall. Hagen had to play after, off it in the 29 open left-handed shot. <laughs> so and there's a little bit of an argument that predates uh, eight, his 1894 argument, which I, I love. But that's one of the things that I find interesting because um, I, I think it's fairly, I, I'd call it quote unquote, common knowledge in the mm-hmm. golf history community that McDonald's protests uh, for the first U.S. amateur caused the U.S. amateur that came second, and he protested again, and that's how we got the USJ. But there's quite a bit of published evidence. I, I know uh, David Chamil uh, wrote uh, an article in 2015, I think it was Moriarty's uh, out of California's research, uh, that McDonald claimed that he had this pivotal role in the founding of the USGA based on these events, but he may have overstated his influence in Scotland's gift golf, which was the pivotal book that a lot of people take as the gospel. Right. And what's interesting is he doesn't take credit for it and sort of other publications that he wrote, but it's really that one book that sort of shapes how people view um, the founding of the association for you know, many, many years, I mean, decades after. Um, But really what we find through newspaper articles, most especially, and sort of um, other chronicles of the game is that, you know, there are these two championships that are held. That is the real impetus for change. But there are also other discussions that are happening among these golf clubs that, um, you know, there needs to be standardization in the rules. There needs to be a way for people to compete and be eligible for championships um, through handicapping that's consistent. There, there are needs from the golfing community that are not being met by, you know, the system of there are lots of clubs with their own rules and they host their own championships. So um, it's really a solution to a problem that's facing a lot of golfers that, Um, you know, McDonald plays a role in and plays a huge role in. I mean, like his role um, in shaping the USG in its early years should in no way be discredited. He was a huge, yeah, huge contributor. Um, But it's, you know, people like um, 
Henry O. Talmadge and um, Lawrence Curtis, who really send out the you know initial invitations to um, in, include member clubs in this sort of discussion. Um, about founding um, a national governing body. And you can see in um, sort of accounts of these, or the first 1894 tournaments, there are already notes saying, you know, um, we really think that, you know, a national governing body will be founded, maybe not this year, but maybe next year. You know, these are things that need to be resolved in, in the letter written from St. Andrews inviting co- you know, competitors to their 1894 tournament, they specifically say, you know, we're going to host this championship, but we would absolutely love to either, we would, we would be fine either continuing to host this national championship for years to come, or we would love to join with, you know, another governing body made up of other clubs that could better host this basically. So there's already discussions. It's already happening. This is this is the way that the world is sort of turning. And then McDonald is sort of just the fiery interest that, um, you know, helps push it over the edge. I love that. Um, the other non-USGA sanctioned event, uh, which there was only one, was at St. Andrews, uh, was considered the first non-official USGA US Open, won by a very famous golfer in the, of that era, the professional at Shinnecock Hills, Willie Dunn. Now, 30 years after the tournament, writers and golfers were referring to Willie Dunn as the first U.S. Open champion. And in 1910, the USGA yearbook, I believe, Willie Dunn is listed as the 1894 Open Championship, 16 years after the championship. So my tough question for you, (laughs) this obviously wasn't a USGA sanctioned event. No. (laughs) Um, But to be fair, the Open Championship wasn't sanctioned for its first 30 years either. Should we consider Willie Dunn as a pre-USGA US Open champion? No okay, right answer. So, <laughs> well, I'm going to give you the right answer, Connor. No, I just <laughs> Ooh, I, I like where you went. You're on this show anytime you want from now on. Oh, I'm bumping everybody thanks. else. Oh, thanks. Well, look, I, that is a great point. And I actually, I have to check out the 1910 yearbook because I don't know if I've seen that, but I will take your word for it. I'll send it to um, you. Okay, perfect. Um, but in my mind, actually, of those three tournaments that happened in 1894, the Open is the one that should least be considered a national championship. And I will tell you why. The field? It's is contested. Yeah, it's contested yeah. between four players. Really good four, four players, players, though, to be fair. I know. I know. Really <laughs> I good I think the players. second, I, to be fair, the 1895 U.S. Open, I think only had 10. So it's a yeah, factor a of a small, little. Th- Totally agree. Totally agree. It's a small field. It's a different time. But, you know, the fact that it's it's four players played at match play, it's not representative of, you know, the talent in the country necessarily. Killing me, Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) I know. You know, and it's nice that Willie Dunn got like a nice championship medal out of it. And he should be proud of Chick Evans, for the record, in 1916, called him. 1894 U.S. Open champion. I'm going to have you take it up with the Evans Foundation as soon as we're off here. (laughs) Absolutely not. I respect those guys. (laughs) Um, But, you know, Willie Dunn, he's he's a great competitor. He's a great player and he's and he's a champion. But I I don't think that it can be considered even even though, again, I think St. Andrews and the way that they conducted those 1894 tournaments was very close to how the 1895 championships were conducted. I mean, you have Reed and Talmadge, um, who are both founding members of yeah, the USGA. Yeah, a lot of the founding the people were right there for that tournament. 
Totally. Um, you have a lot of them either playing in it or watching it. Um, so, and I think they actually went by the sort of English championship rules for it. So there's some precedents. I mean, it's, they didn't just, you know, slap this thing together. There was definitely some thought, but I don't think I that feel she's coming around. I feel like you're coming yeah. around. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm crediting what you said. This is I, USGA you know, bias, folks. You're hearing it here. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, no. But I, I, yeah, I just don't think that, you know, four players can really accurately be considered a true open championship the way that sort of the open championship was meant to and supposed to be played. Fair enough argument. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, so 125 years ago, on December 22nd, five of our clubs got together to do what? And can you walk me through what transpired? Yes, definitely. So, um, And was Willie really Dunn, fun. the U.S. Open champion there? I'm sorry, I had to go there. He was not. He was not there. <laughs> he was not. Um no, he was not. But there were some really fascinating characters. And it happens in sort of like a very 1890s setting. Like this meeting is of the times. Um, it's it's really fun and interesting. So uh, Henry O'Talmage, uh, he's a secretary at St. Andrews. Um, you know, he's this observant writer. He's really big into outdoor pursuits and athletics. He's actually pretty young. Um, and he is a member of the Calumet Club, which was a sort of men's um, social club in New York City. And there were something like 300 of these in New York City at the time. And this was kind of, you, you would belong to one or a few, and you would go sort of meet with your friends with like-minded interests, meet new people. It was kind of a way of connect, you know, connecting, um, rubbing shoulders with other people in your sort of levels of society. So he's a society man who's really interested in golf. And he invites um, these five clubs to sort of neutral territory to um, discuss the founding of the association. Um, so where, where, where did they meet again? I'm sorry. I don't know. Did you just yeah, mention the Cal- that? The Calumet Club Thank in you. New York Thank City. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they would have met in some sort of smoke filled library, <laughs> um, you know, had dinner before and then sort of retired to discuss the sort of business at hand. Um, and so you have these five clubs rep- represented. You have St. Andrews. And the representatives are John Reed, and we talked about him a little bit, but he's a founder of St. Andrews. He's from Scotland. Um, He is um, really interesting in terms of you know, his commitment to the game um, and its Scottish tradition. So I think, you know, that's really helpful to keep in mind is that you not only have these Americans um, who are interested in the game, who are learning it secondhand, but you have someone who's, you know, been brought up in the culture of the game of golf, um, who's also there to advise. So you have John Reed, um, Henry Talmadge. Um, then you also have, you know, Newport is represented. Um, uh, Theodore Havemeyer, he's the president of Newport Golf Club at the time. Um, he was a uh, a sugar king, a native New Yorker. He had like left school at the age of 14 to enter the sugar refinery business. Um, he's sort of described as someone with a lot of charm and a lot of tact um, and also a ton of financial backing. I mean, he is rich. There is no doubt about it. Um, and he's extremely generous with his money. I mean, he already in, in newspaper accounts, you can see that he donates like multiple trophies to different championships and tournaments and events um, just to sort of garner interest for them and build the game. So he's an interesting character. Um, 
Then you also have Shinnecock, you have um, Barber and Samuel Parrish. Um, and Samuel Parrish was one of the founders of Shinnecock. Um, and um, yeah, and he he also certainly, you know, Shinnecock was certainly a leader in the game at that time. And so Parrish would have been at the forefront of that. Um, and then you have uh, the country club at Brookline. You have Lawrence Curtis. Um, and he's a Boston Brahmin who... Um, you know, golf at the country club was pretty well established at that point in time, too. Um, he actually inspires his, I think they're his nieces, the the Curtis sisters, to play the game of golf. Um, so he's really tied into the game as well. Um, you have another guy, Sear is his last name. I don't know too much about him. Um, and then you have McDonald representing Chicago Golf Club and uh, Ryerson. And I want to say that he actually perished on the Titanic, um, which oh, is, is that interesting. Right? I didn't know that. Yeah, um, an interesting aside, but um, and obviously uh, Charles Blair McDonald, you know, you know, educated um, abroad and learns the game there, and is someone who, you know, leads the USGA moving forward with the rules, especially. Um, so you have these these representatives of these five uh, very important clubs in the United States um, meet together, and they. Uh, you know, settle on the objects and purpose of the association and come up with a name and uh, they elect their officers and and that's that. Yeah. And the first name was the Amateur Golf Association of the United States. How long did that name last and why was it changed? Do we know? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. You actually see two different versions of the name between December 22nd and February 21st of 1895. So just a few months later. Um, but basically I think what happens is the amateur golf association of the United States isn't going to work because they're going to deal with professionals. You know, they're going to host an open that's open to professionals. Then you also see the American golf association, which they decide, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not guessing, but I'm a little bit guessing here. They decide because there had been some um, requests for Canadian clubs to be sure. part yeah, of the association. Sense. America, North yeah, America, so, South America. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So they kind of have to say, no, we're not doing uh, we're not going to include Canadian golf clubs. So um, by February 21st, they you know vote on and, and decide and um, stick to the United States uh, Golf Association. And also at that meeting, um, you get the Constitution and bylaws, um, which are adopted. Um, and it's interesting. There's, you know, a note uh, in those early minutes that say, you know, the committee would like to extend a specific thank you to McDonald for his work on the Constitution bylaws. Um, and he also suggests suggests the objects of the association, which are like the five, you know, extremely important things that they're, you know, this association is going to do. So you really see McDonald's fingerprints on just about everything in these first couple meetings. You know, there's a there's a story I've heard, and I, maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, but I, I've heard that, um, you know, whether whether it's just, you know, one of those stories that gets passed down, but the sixth member, we know the sixth member of the USGA was Essex County Club. And there is a story that their membership uh, application was delayed by a storm. Have you heard this at all? This, I, I don't know if it's folklore or, or just a story that's passed down, but I, I find it fascinating. You know, I haven't heard the specifics there, but I definitely have read that there was some sort of ill feelings between either Tuxedo and Essex and the five founding clubs shortly after because they both felt that they, 
you know, should have been included in this meeting. And I think for all intents and purposes, they should have. And Talmadge says sort of later in his reflections that, um, that yes, that's something that either gotten wrong with the postage or that he had, you know, misplaced an application or something, something had gone wrong, basically, um, that, you know, that maybe precluded them from that original meeting, but both of them were, you know, immediately sort of added to the USGA family. You're right still first that, ten, so. right? You're still in the first ten. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. Good. You're definitely. It's pretty good. Yeah. You're OG status for sure. That's right. You're very. <laughs> um, yeah. What very- What were the USGA's intentions? I mean, were they thinking of championships only, or is there that mind that they're going to be a ruling body of golf in those early meetings? So. It, there definitely are some lofty goals. I mean, considering the landscape of American golf at the time, they set themselves up for um, one having a lot of power, um, you know, in a responsible way. But really speaking to the main issues at the time that were not easy to solve. So, you know, their first object to promote interest in the game of golf—that seems pretty standard, um, to establish and enforce uniformity in the rules by creating a representative authority. Um, and you know, that again proves to be a lot harder than, uh, than just that one sentence. I know it takes decades and decades for full uniformity, um, you know, even in the United States. Um, and then, you know, they sort of, sort of add to that statement by saying the executive committee will be, you know, um, uh, final authority on matters of controversy. So they bestow themselves with sort of that power of, um, as you know, a governing body does to, uh, you know, take in suggestions, um, think about them and, you know, formulate answers, um, and then establish uniform handicapping. What's fun about this one is that in the 1894 original meeting, it says like the phrasing is more like attempt to, if possible, establish handicapping. Like they're not sure that it's it's going to work. Um, I, I would I, argue it doesn't work against <laughs> half the people I play. There's no way they're 14s. There's t- there's way too many 14s out there, Victoria. I, I've played against them myself, Connor. I totally understand. Um, <laughs> but um yeah. So, you know, that's kind of the original phrasing, but by the February 21st, uh, meeting that's changed to, they will establish uniform handicapping. So they're at least pretty confident they're going to work towards that. Um, and then, you know, the final one is decide on what links the amateur and open will be played and essentially, you know, not conduct the championship necessarily, but, you know, preside over it in that way. So those are the five things. And so, no, you know, the championships are a part of it, but, Again, that also shows why those three tournaments in 1894 aren't the full reason why the USGA is founded. You know, there's a, they're meeting other issues. Mm-hmm. You know, in those early days, I, I, I ask myself, I don't know the answer to this, but in the early days, did the USGA see itself as an independent entity or an extension of the RNA in America? Because it seems to me early on, we're adopting basically all the rules. I know, I know McDonald had fierce arguments with the USJ as yeah. years passed whenever we look to potentially change something that the RNA enacted. So I definitely feel that the USGA saw themselves as a separate individual entity that would only coordinate with the RNA and was in no way, shape, or form sort of beholden to the rules of the RNA. I mean, you see the RNA sort of coming up 
not coming up with, but, you know, going through this process of asking for input on the rules from other governing bodies and golf clubs in the rest of the world in the like late 1890s, 1896, 1897. So that happens after the founding of the association. They don't really have a, yeah, they don't really have a permanent code of rules that they're seeing, um, that are seen in that way. So I think the USGA had the foresight, which was, I'm sure, um, Reed and McDonald most especially, um, the foresight to say uniformity in the rules with the home of golf you know, with St. Andrews, the birthplace of golf is going to be integral um, to establishing golf in this country and having respect for those rules. Um, I think that that legitimacy, um, you know, that transfer of legitimacy was important. So, yeah, I think they, you know, they didn't have to adopt the rules of the RNA, but, um, you know, they, uh, I think it was at the February meeting as well in 1895 that they assigned McDonald, um, and, and a few others to sort of a rules committee, um, that's specifically supposed to determine the rules. Um, and they don't make a real suggestion of, you know, they adopt the 1891 rules of St. Andrews. Um, but they don't, they don't come up with, um, sort of interpretations, American interpretations of those rules until like 1897. So there is some time where they really think about it. Yeah, that's good to know. I I was curious more than anything, because I know a lot of the rules and there was a lot of standardization and they wanted standardization. They were, they were respectant of the tradition that had been set up prior. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Definitely. I think that's a really good way to phrase it. So in 1895, we have the first official, I'm using that, Mm -hmm. USGA major championships. (laughs) uh, And they're established, uh, and to my knowledge, there were three, uh, the US Open, the US Amateur, and the Women's US Amateur. Um, Where were these events held? And how were they received when they were put out there for the world to, to watch? Yeah, so let's start with uh, the Amateur and the Open uh, to start. They're both hosted at uh, Newport Golf Club back to back. Um, the the U.S. Open, the, sorry, the U.S. Amateur is first, and they were actually initially postponed uh, because of the America's Cup yacht races. Um, so they postponed them. You, you can see sort of the precedents here. Yeah, we don't <laughs> do that anymore, folks. Important. Yeah, no, no, sailing does not take precedence to the National Golf Championships um, anymore. But it it was it did in that time. So um, you have the Amateur Championship. There's a field of 32. They play on New. Newport's nine hole, you know, Rocky farm course, uh, at match play. And, um, and, uh, you know, Charles Blair McDonald, he defeats Charles Sands 12 and 11 in a 36 hole final. Wasn't named Lawrence. I, I'm sticking to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there were other Lawrence's in Charles's life. I should have looked up because I, I, I had a feeling it would come up. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I mean, McDonald soundly defeats Sands um, and he, you know, he's not really challenged by in any of his matches, uh, so to speak. So he uh, it works out really well for him in the end. Yeah, he either becomes the first or the third U.S. amateur champion, depending on how you look at it. Right. Right. But he's, he's somewhere up there regardless. So, um, yeah, he finally gets what he wanted. (laughs) Um, and then of course the U S open takes place, uh, basically the next day, uh, the winner is Horace Rollins and he's the assistant golf professional at Newport golf club. And I think that's the only time in U S open history that, um, 
Who comes um, in second? Willie Dunn. Willie Dunn. Willie Dunn. Favorite. <laughs> I mean, right now, you know, Willie finished. Willie finishes that match, and he goes, "Gosh, if only Charles Bear McDonald would have lost, he would have said that the USGA wasn't a valid organization. We'd do this again next year." <laughs> uh, you know, see, he he might have, but I don't I I don't think that could have happened. I mean, McDonald had his, as we said, his fingerprints all over the association he did. He at did. this point. It was just a joke. Yeah. I, he wouldn't have done it. I know, I know. But for him to, but it's interesting. It's always fun to think what if in history. I mean, you know, if you watch the History Channel, a lot of those shows are you know entirely what what happens. If this changes in the past, what would our future be now? You hey, know, as long um, as you go, don't go to ancient aliens, we'll be fine with this right. conversation. <laughs> right, right. But I just don't think McDonald could have basically contradicted himself. Yeah, you know, if he had lost the first, you know, the first official match, he would have gone against the own rule, his own rules that he set in place, and basically undermined the association that he helped bring to fruition. Uh, so the pressure yeah, he, he must probably... have felt at Newport. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, he plays in he plays in some other championships um, uh, after that, but um, he never really. I think he was a contender a little bit later. Um, and son in law followed him, right, with uh, two amateurs following. Oh, nice! Yeah, I didn't realize that they were they were connected, but um, yeah. uh, married his daughter. Uh, oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Next two. <laughs> well, I'm glad he kept the golfing in the family. That's, that's right. Good. Maybe that's why he kind of walked away. Is like I'm leaving it to you know my my buddy here. Um, and yeah. then we have the women's U.S. Hammer, which and I I find this fantastic because um, unlike our brethren across the sea, our uh, U.S. Open U.S. Amateur were founded simultaneously with the women's U.S. Amateur, and it was played at Meadowbrook. Let me ask you this: Was it a member of the USGA by then? I don't know. It was like, I mean, oh, um, one year later. Well, I, mean, I think it must, must I think have it been. Must right? have been. Um, I think it must have been because actually there's a little aside that happens in the tournament that um, one of the women, I cannot pronounce her name, um, but um, one of the women in the tournament who applies to play, she gets there and they say like, I'm sorry, your club is actually not a USGA member club. You can't play. So, but in respect for the woman that she was essentially paired with for the day, um, she goes out and plays, you know, she plays as a marker essentially. But um, yeah, so I think the club would probably have to have been um, a member club to yeah, host. I'm sure it is. Yeah, it would make sense, right? Yeah. And so that that's one Definitely. by Lucy Barnes-Brown. Mm-hmm. Who, for yeah. trivia buffs out there, you, you know where I'm going to go with this? I'm not sure. <laughs> she she becomes the first American-born winner of a USGA championship. Charles yes, Blair McDonald really was born in Canada. And nice. Horace Rollins, I believe, in Scotland. Yes. Um, definitely overseas, at least. But you're right. I mean, and that in itself really shows you the landscape of golfers and talented golfers in the United States at that time. I mean, the game is dominated by immigrants. Um, it's dominated by, um, you know, people who learned the game abroad. So um, America was looking and starved for American golf champions for the first couple years. Um, that's pretty fun. Let me. Uh, do you, the, are, how are you doing on time, by the way? Are you okay? Oh, I'm great. Okay, because oh, yeah, we're going sure. long, and I'm just going to keep going because I'm I'm liking this. Oh, for sure. Okay. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Yeah, I can keep going. I I have to leave at two o'clock. You just hang time. up. Oh, so that's four o'clock. Four <laughs> o'clock your time. <laughs> four o'clock my time. Okay. Um, 
Okay. Um, but to get back to the women's amateur, this is actually a really interesting story that has not been told very much at all. So if you look in the 1894 bylaws, the women's amateur is not included. It was not part of the original plan of the association. Um, and it doesn't surprise me because, you know, the, the tournaments that were contested in, in 1894 were not women's tournaments. Um, but I love kind of what happens, the timeline of what I've sort of been able to understand about how the women's amateur comes to be. Um, well, one, golf is really fashionable for women at the turn of the century in America. It's played in places like Southampton, Newport, Morristown. You know, women are looking for outdoor activities that are appropriate to their social standing and, you know, what they're sort of able to wear. Um, and for the most part, they're really welcomed by their husbands and fathers into the game. Um, so you see the growth of some women's clubs, either separate courses, women's golf associations begin to appear at the turn of the century. Um uh, the earliest one being uh, in 1897. Um, so both sexes are welcome to play golf in America from the outset, which is fantastic. Um, and so when you get to 1895, there are notes in – do you know the, the story of the, the the Robert Cox trophy, the 1896 Women's Amateur no, Trophy? No, but I know it's the most beautiful major championship trophy in golf currently. I mean, and, folks, it if is. you haven't – if you don't know it, Google it right now. Yeah, it's, it's actually my favorite artifact in um, in the museum, uh, not only for its looks, um, but also because of the story behind it. So in the fall – in the summer of 1895 um, – uh, this man, Robert Cox, he's a member of British Parliament. He loves the game of golf. He's from the St. Andrews area. He um, comes to Morristown, New Jersey, and he plays golf at Morris County um, uh, Morris Morris County Golf Club, Morris County Country Club. Um, and he it's a club founded by women, run by women, um, which is. I mean, in itself, really fantastic. There's, you know, Morris County becomes the first um, uh, member of the full voting member of the USJ Golf Association with a woman as the president. I She's did not the voting know that. head wow. in 1895. That is awesome. Um, yeah, so there's this letter to Nina Howland, who's the president of Morris County, you know, giving her club, run by women, full voting rights in the matters of the association that early on. Um, but he comes to Morris County and he's so inspired by the play of these women, by the beauty of the course, by what they've done in terms of their leadership. He wants a women's amateur championship, like a women's national championship to be hosted by Morris County. So he writes a letter to the association saying, I will donate a $1,000 cup for the playing of this championship at Morris County in 1896. So that happens like kind of in the summer fall. And what I've read from newspaper articles is it inspires two other sort of men closely associated with the USA to donate a cup for an 1895 women's championship, which is quote, hastily arranged, um, in, in November of 1895. So you see this sort of, I mean, this sets an incredible precedent one, um, that, you know, a women's tournament needs to be conducted nationally, that the women's game in America will be very important, that women will be leaders in this game, that they are respected competitors, but also it sets a precedent that, the USGA can conduct championships for any group of people that need a national championship. Um, you know, they're not limited to the amateur in the open. And you see this affecting the way the USGA conducts and begins championships 
the amateur public links, the juniors, the seniors, you know, the mid ands. These are Four different yeah. groups of great. Exactly. Different groups of people that need to be served with a national championship. Um, and the announcement a few years ago about, you know, uh, a championship for um for, you know, physically challenged individuals. I mean, this is, it sets an incredible precedent and the USJ realizes that this is a need and they conduct this championship and, you know, Havemeyer is there. Um, he serves as a referee. Talmadge is a scorer. I mean, the men at the, the men at the highest levels of the association are intimately involved with this championship and excited for it which is fun. Oh, that's, I did not know all of that. Thank you for sharing. I, I didn't. That's <laughs> oh, fantastic. I like just the story of how the, 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 you know, the championship trophy came about. And I, and I think yeah. it's wonderful that the, the founding of the USJ championships included women. Um, but oddly enough, the women's US Open wouldn't follow for another 51 years. Was that just a reflection of the times between, you know, amateur and professional status? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think you're exactly right with that, Connor. Really what I can see is that the women's, you know, even the men's professional game, though you have these sort of, um, the professional game is obviously a thing, uh, you know, in the 1890s, the professionals aren't really worshipped quite like the amateurs until 1920s, 1930s. Like then you start seeing these heroes like Gene Sarazen and Hagen. Walter Hagen. Yeah. And, and yeah, these people that people really connect with and admire. Um, and the women's game follows that. So they're like a whole you know decade behind in that sense. And the women's professional game doesn't really take off until – Again, this sort of you know Great Depression, women women being able to work um, in or, different yeah, sort of wartime. areas. I mean, men are off at yeah. war or just coming back from war, and it's changed the exactly. way you know again how society is reflecting you know the growth in the country clubs going back to the eighteen hundreds yeah. to yeah. you know social norms and professional golf. That would make sense completely. Yeah, the changing status of women and what they're um, allowed to do, and then you also you know have. Um, you know, Wilson, the company Wilson Sporting Goods, um, you know, they start supporting women like Patty Berg and Babe Dietrichson. And you you begin to see the professional ranks growing, but it's such a slow start for them. I mean, honestly, there there weren't that many players. You see the women's open dominated by amateur golfers for its first few years. Um, it's still it's still just catching on. So I think that the need just it existed, but it wasn't as prominent. It was such a small section. Um, and I think that's kind of what happens with like the women's senior, uh, open, uh, you know, there's a small segment and it's growing and then you see the need and then the tournament is, you know, the championship is inaugurated. Yeah, I went so to the one at I Chicago golf club. That was so good. Oh, you did? I was there walking. Yeah. That was so fantastic. Yeah. I mean, just fantastic. It was so, so great to see. I mean, the excitement and the level of interest. And then and, to go back to Chicago Golf Club, Club right? Totally. Totally. So good. I mean, I was, I had goosebumps. Yeah. I took, um, <laughs> I took three uh, nephews and three nieces with me and oh, we walked awesome. the course and I talked about, we literally walked it in order so they could see Charles Blair, actually technically Great. Seth Rayner's layout um, uh -huh. of Chicago Golf Club and the template holes. And I, I talked to them about the history of these template holes and how they're borrowed from the ideals of Charles Blair McDonald and his, you know, cool. national golf links. And I, I think they glazed over a couple times, but then they'd see these <laughs> amazing features and then they'd see these amazing women just hitting, 
golf shots yeah. that you know I can only dream of and I'm a decent golfer and they're just right. killing it out there <laughs> it was unbelievable yeah it's really fun there's 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 nothing uh like going to one of those courses that you you know may never ever be able to play in your life um but see the best players play it I mean that is just what a great experience. And so for that's you folks, awesome. You had a great yeah, time. For you folks that haven't, haven't been to it, the other amazing thing that you get to do there is you get to walk down the fairways. I mean, you're walking oh, behind yeah. the players. There's no line. I mean, you're really experiencing the course as you would playing it, walking down the fairway and watching other players play, which I thought, I mean, that's a really old ideal of way to watch a, a, a major yeah. championship. That doesn't happen that much anymore. Yeah, if you just watch, you know, the Women's Open and the U.S. Open, you wouldn't know that, you know, our amateur championships and some of our other smaller championships, you can, you know, walk down the down the fairway behind the players just like you did, you know, in the 1920s or, um, you know, following Bob Jones around. I mean, it's really it changes the whole perspective on spectating golf. So, yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's a whole new experience and it's really fun. I've definitely taken, um, you know, friends to to championships that don't know golf very well. I try to take them to those because I think that experience is just so much different from what they so much more different than what they expect yeah here let's jump into another thing here just not to go too far ahead but uh 1896 was a pivotal uh time for the usga specifically in the u.s open um why don't you talk a little bit about the pivotal stride in golf history was that was made at shinnecock specifically with a a certain well a couple players but specifically one yeah yeah. So, um, in 1896, obviously this is the second plane of the U S open. It's still in its infancy. Um, you know, the USGA is still just getting established. Um, and what you find is this, uh, great moment where, uh, John Shippen becomes the first African-American to compete in the USG championship. Um, and then Shinnecock tribe member Oscar Bunn, um, also plays in the championship. Um, and the story surrounding this is that, you know, the, the one sort of thing that I can find in contemporary articles about it um, is that the, the participants, um, the professionals objected to the boys um, meeting them on equal terms. Um, and they held a meeting uh, the night before to protest it. And so they sent a petition to the officers of the USGA. And the sort of phrase of resolving it is, but nothing more has been heard of it. Um, and so in later accounts by Shippen of what happened, he says that Havemeyer, you know, put his foot down and said the Open would not continue if Shippen and Bunn were unable to protest participate. Um, but whatever happens, um, however that resolves itself, what certainly is in place is this watershed moment of the USJ saying the participants will be the best in the world, no matter who they are, where they come from, what their stature is, their background, anything. Um, you know, what we're here to determine is the best golfer in the United States. So it's, it's a great moment and it, and it makes a big difference. And he almost won the tournament. I mean, he, he, he did. hit it into a bunker. <laughs> Mind you, folks, this is before the era of the sand wedge. And I, I know it took him many shots to, you know, escape the bunker and it ultimately doomed, doomed him. Yeah, he um, he takes a large number on the on a hole and, you know, comes in um, somewhere close to the top, but yeah, like top um, six, doesn't quite make it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's really interesting about this is some people in the sort of understanding of the story feel like, 
okay, well, there was a participant um, and he was African-American and, and, and he played in it and whatever. Um, but the real thing is, is that Shippen was considered to potentially be like a the first great American born champion. Absolutely. People were already, yeah, people were already talking about, you know, his proficiency and his skills. And, um, you know, he was already well known in that sense. And they were sort of hailing him as this person who could, you know, defeat the invaders, um, in a sense. And, you know, that's, that also is a sentiment that's not just in golf at that time. Um, you know, literature is dominated by, uh, international writers, people at the, in the 1890s are waiting for the next great American author. You know, they're also waiting for the next great American champion and the next great American golfer. So they feel like Shippen is the answer. So, you know, Shippen has his game to sort of back him up, um, entirely. It's based on his skill, nothing to do with his background is why he should participate. Yeah, I love the shipping story. As a matter of fact, I have a future podcast coming out just on him. I found some actual oh, uh, photos of him and renderings of him. And um, yeah, it should be a fun one because I, I just think his story, because it wasn't just that one U.S. Open. He played in U.S. Opens after that. I think that's often lost in the history books, too. Yeah, he wasn't just a one off because he was, you know, employed at the club. He he was a um, he was a proficient professional um and definitely had a real career i think i read that he became the first african-american professional i think that's i think i think that's right i want to say it was eronomic but i don't know that for a hundred percent um i'm not sure but i you know what's also interesting is that john shippen's contributions to you know african-americans in golf doesn't end with his participation in 1896 he becomes um you know this figure at an African-American golf club in New Jersey um, as the professional there um, and, you know, really helps cultivate a separate space that is celebrating the African-American and their connection to the game um, later in his life. And that's like decades of service. Um, so, you know, he, he's a really influential figure and a really fascinating person, um, not just for his one participation in a championship. Yeah. Now I'm going to jump off topic. I'm going to go to one of my, my tough questions if you're ready. Um, sure. So St. Andrews, <laughs> right? One of the, the first five founding members of the USJ played a pivotal role in the early days of American golf. It was a charter member of the USGA. Um, and all five of the other, other other four, I should suppose, have hosted a U.S. Open or U.S. Amateur. Do we know why the U.S. Open or U.S. Amateur was never played at St. Andrews Golf Club in New York? So you've actually stumped me on this one, Connor. Um, it's curious, but... right? Out of all of them? Oh, it's fascinating. It's totally curious. And what's interesting to me is I had read um, in some places that there was sort of uh, disagreement on, you know, enlarging the course on making it 18 holes. You know, at some point, the USGA outgrows the sort of go around the nine hole track four Absolutely. times. Yeah, by um, 1900, it's gone. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you, um, and so that's one thing that I think could have been a factor. Um, Do you think but it's because also... Willie Dunn was the first U.S. Open champion? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't think it is. <laughs> 
But you can, you know, we can always ask those questions and we can always look into them. So I am, I appreciate the enthusiasm for Willie Dunn. But, I couldn't, um, I couldn't yeah. go without that question coming back up. It was too good. I'm, I apologize. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. But, um, but you know what is interesting is that discussions again, around that time in 1894, these courses that are all laid out are very different. Um, they're pretty rudimentary, but you know, it's a real advantage to play your home course. Absolutely. Every yeah, go- that were every some of the issues with, uh, Stoddard, uh, winning, uh, was the fact that he knew right. the course better than anybody else. I think McDonald made that complaint. Right, definitely. And so there's another question that comes up in the sort of founding of the association is, should there be a neutral ground, a golf course created by the USGA, the national governing body, to host only championships so that, you know, golfers meet on neutral territory every year? Um, and so that was something that was certainly posed um, as a question. And, you know, the other option that they decide upon is we are going to rotate between some of the greatest clubs in the country. And by that way, it'll even itself out and it will be more accessible to, you know, especially our Western players or, you know, golfers around the country in that way. So, you know, I find that interesting that you mentioned that because Chick Evans uh, wrote an article, gosh, it would have been late 1920s, maybe early 1930. I think it was in the 20s, though, where uh, it went out in the AP and he essentially made the argument that there should be two uh, USGA championship courses and that there oh. should be an East course and a West course. And by the way, even Chick Evans cool. right now, even Chick Evans back then in 1920s did not consider West being like West of Illinois. No, <laughs> it was, no, it was like, certainly. it will be in Olympia fields and it'll be yes. at essentially Shinnecock. And what we do yep. is when the, the USGA would be played at Shinnecock, uh, I'm sorry, the U S amateur while the open is played, in Chicago, and then we'll reverse it the next year. And it's the only fair way to have a championship. So we all know the courses we're playing. So interesting. And you know, what's fun about this is like, look at the masters. I mean, that's played at the same course every single year. Those players know that course. Um, and it's a different type of championship to watch. Um, and I don't know, I think there's like, I like that idea, but I do think there's something to be said for, showcasing all the amazing places in this country um, and sort of opening them up to the general population. I mean, you can, through a U.S. Open or USA Championship, you can see and experience some of the greatest places in this country, like the holy ground of golf. Um, And it's really fun that way. Well, I'll say what I've really liked about the USGA um, in recent decades is taking it to different venues. Uh, Chambers Bay, I know, you know, the USJ had a hard time with it or got a hard time for that. I disagree with it, but, Mm -hmm. uh, the conditions of the course are the conditions of the course and everybody plays the same course. So it's fair. That's my opinion. Um, but I think it's great that they're obviously we have the, the, you know, the, the stalwarts that are going to be there, like the Oakmonts, the Shinnecocks. Tried and true. Yeah. I love them introducing these new venues in there too, that really grab, for instance, the Northwest's attention by having it in Chambers Bay or, you know, bringing it back to California. I just, I think that's what it should be. And I, I, I would disagree with any shape or form or function of having it down to one or two courses. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely 
you know, continues to push this idea of more of like a democratic of the people by the people um, sort of championship, which is really what the USGA is all with the US Open, especially, but all USGA championships are all about. So yeah, I completely agree with you. So the USGA becomes a ruling authority for American golf in 1894, but it didn't go unchallenged in the United States for too long. Uh, yeah. The Western Golf Association started challenging it as a ruling body. Essentially, um, what's the best word for it? Saying that the USGA only cared about golf courses in the in the Northeast. And totally. At one point, uh, there I, I believe it was up for a vote. The WGA, uh, Western Golf Association, almost succeeded in getting the USGA to change its name to the American Golf Association. How familiar are you with that early rivalry with the USGA? Yeah, so the the Western Golf Association is founded in 1899 for some really, you know, valid and necessary purposes. It's basically to give Western golfers a chance to compete in regional championships. Um, it's hard to get over the East Coast. I mean, the West, as Especially we discussed, then. like the yeah, the West is like Chicago. <laughs> it really um, is. That's the best part of the yeah. story, right? Like. Yeah, totally. And if you look at like early U.S. Opens and U.S. Amateurs, I mean, even up until the 19 early 1920s, you have a lot of championships held in Chicago, a lot. But, you know, the other championships, um, you know, there's like one in, in Minnesota and there's one in St. Louis. But really, it's it's East Coast based. Eastern um, So definitely. So it's a very valid, a very valid reason for being founded. Um, but what you find is the Western Golf Association has a very different perspective on the rules. They believe that at least at this time, should, yeah, I was going to say, we be- should say back then. Yeah. Back yeah. Then. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Just trying to cover um, you too, Victoria. You don't need those oh, calls. Thanks. We love you. Western Golf Association for the record. Totally. No. And this is actually, I think, a great growing and learning opportunity for um, American golf is this rivalry. I mean, don't you love someone that challenges the status quo and asks the tough questions and gets you to examine, you know, the way things are? I mean, so this is great. I think it's it's fine. It's good for golf um, eventually in the end. Um, but anyway, so the Western Golf Association, they um, they have at the time, um, in the early 1900s from the outset, um, have a different view on the rules. They think that there needs to be a purely American code, that the RNA code in no way, shape or form really covers the issues that are, you know, important to American golfers. Um, so for example, you know, there's steel shafts is a big issue, lost balls out of bounds, the stymie. So the Western Golf Association for a while, um, they, you know, bring these they, they sort of call these local rules. So they kind of skirt a major um, controversy. But um, at the same time, their rulings tend to be more liberal. Um, and um, so it's uh, that's sort of the main controversy for a while. And then in the 1920s, though, there's, again, this under this feeling that the USGA is not properly represented representative of all the clubs in the country. Um, so they push to have their name changed. The USGA says, we'd really rather you not. We don't know why. There's sort of this um, shift, I mean, to be but, fair, to be you know, fair, to I mean, I don't, I'm not huh? sure how the United States Golf Association is really better or worse than the American Golf Association. I, I no, never got uh, the WGA's oh, argument there. It's still the American the, Golf oh, Association. The WGA, wanted, the WGA wanted to change their name. 
to the American Golf Association. Oh, okay. Not gotcha. The gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So they were then going to say that they had jurisdiction over, you know, all all territory and territorial. Yeah, run. gotcha. Exactly, a territorial run. Um, but real, what happens? How that's sort of all resolved in the 1920s is that. Um, the, the USGA expands um, – they expand their executive committee. They add four or five um, different um, lead, executive committee members that are all from golf associations in the West, from the South, um, you know, California, places like that. Um, and then also – actually, there's some little switcheroo that happens where they – put something up to a vote. And by this time, the Western Golf Association has sort of infiltrated the executive committee and they have more representation. And so then the president at the time, you know, creates this committee of ex-presidents of the USGA that votes on some things. And so they end up sort of, you know, stopping the coup that's about to happen. This is why the early days of golf and why you must love golf history. It's for stories (laughs) like this. It's too good. Yeah, it's really it's really fun. And again, what's re- what's also great about it is that everyone I feel that I've come across in history, though they have different opinions, all really love the game and want the best for it. So it's kind of fun to see how those different opinions all work out. And it's it's it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I'll tell you one of my favorite, you know, shots across the bow and it wasn't accepted, but uh, was when. Uh, Francis, we met, lost his amateur status via the USGA for having a sporting goods store, which they thought was profiting from the game of golf. I think looking back, I think most people would disagree with that, the way that was defined, but, and that's fine. But the Western Golf Association offered, we met the option to play in their, the Western amateur and yeah. we met and he wins. Yeah. Yeah. And we met, you're right. It's, uh, <laughs> During that whole time, it's, it's I don't know, a fascinating yeah. shot across the bow. And then, of course, after the war, uh, he reestablishes his amateur status and yeah. goes on to do great things, including becoming, I believe, the first um, American to be uh, head of the RNA, which another yeah. history in itself. Yeah, I mean, we met we met in the 19 teens. He's just come off, you know, winning the U S open in 1913, this amazing moment for American golf history and for American golfers. He inspires, you know, thousands of new players to take up the game that are, you know, just caddies from across the street. Like he is. Um, and then he wins the 1914 U S amateur. So he's not a fluke. He's a real champion. And, you know, he's a, he's a lovable character. He's soft-spoken. He's kind. Like Francis, we met's a great, a great person and so respectful of the game of golf. So a lot of times, you know, they'll chalk it up to, uh, the current president of the USGA at the time that he had, sort of tried to make an example of we met. Um, and definitely I think that history looks back on that ruling as something that was not correct um, and didn't really speak to we met's true intentions, but it's rectified. I mean, after the war, so he goes, you know, he goes basically a year and a half, two years. Um, and as soon as that president has left, you know, they say that his participation in, in the war effort and his service to the United States, um, in the army is basically, you know, nullifies the amateur status ruling. Um, so he's reinstated, but, um, yeah, the, the Western Gulf Association, surrounding that controversy, they soften their amateur status rules, um, specifically. So we met can play in their, in their championships. Yeah. I love that. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm going to start wrapping it up. So I'm going to ask you this question. Sure. Uh, what are your favorite pivotal moments in the last 125 years 
that have helped shape the game we play and love today? Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> and the next hour will be Victoria talking. <laughs> right. Go. <laughs> right, right. I'll try to avoid that. I'll, I'll keep it very top line. But um, uh, we've talked about a few of them today. I mean, the the first championships, the first women's championship is really exciting to me. Um, the 1896 U.S. Open is another that is this watershed moment. Um uh, then in 1911, instituting the, uh, you know, the Calkins first nationwide handicap system, um, is really exciting. Cause like you said, when you play those 14 handicappers, um, Cheaters. uh, <laughs> you know, back at that time you could, because different clubs, you know, did their course rating. I mean, it wasn't called that might've been called par rating at that time, but, you know, basically established handicaps in different ways. You could belong to two clubs and have two different handicaps. So, um, it's pretty hard to establish, um, requirements for national championship participation. If, you know, you've got one guy on a handicap list in New York, that's a six. So he qualifies, but you've got the same guy on a club in Philadelphia and he's a 12. And so, you know, how are you going to really conduct, um, championships that have the best field? So that, that moment in 1911, where they kind of figure out a nationwide handicapping system and then follow it up in 1912 with again, a par rating that's standardized, um, is really cool. And, and is so, um, such a precursor to all the things happening today. I mean, we've got the world handicap system that's um, coming out in 2020. Um, so it's really, really relevant to now. Um, so another watershed moment for me is the founding of the women's committee in 1917. Um, you have, again, like we talked about, these women who play golf, I always find are such um, spitfires and such like interesting, um, confident, forward-looking women. Um, and so you find after the 1916 Women's Amateur, several women gather and approach the USGA and say, you know, we need to have input on the courses that we play. Um, we would like to determine where we can test our national championship. There should be some female input into this. Um, and and the USGA is entirely supportive and, you know, starts the women's tournament committee. Um, and they, you know, the first committee is comprised of these female representatives from five different regions, including Alexa Sterling, who's like 20 years old at the time. Um, Phenom. And who, Phenom. Alexa yeah. Who becomes, totally. And um, Mer- Marion Hollins is also on the original oh, women's wow. committee. I did um, not know that. Those two alone. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Fanny Osgood, who was, uh, was, president uh, or committee chair and she was um really involved with sort of uh boston women's golf but these are all women with real opinions who you know what qualifies you to be a great player and a great advocate for the game is experience playing golf and these women are all champions um they're they're really respected for what they've achieved. Um, and so their opinions are therefore respected on golf and how golf should, um, be played. And so that's a really cool moment. Um, uh, and obviously paves the way for a lot of female leaders being integrated into USGA leadership. I mean, I think Judy Bell, um, you know, starts out on the women's committee, first uh, female USGA president in, in the eighties. So, um, yeah, that's a really great moment. Um, the founding of the green section, the green section is going to oh, celebrate yeah. its 100th one. anniversary. Yeah. In 19, in 1920, um, you know, and at the time, essentially the way you would sort of approach, uh, 
conditioning for your golf course is you would ask other professionals, you would read some books, you would, you know, try and look around, you would test things, but there was no sort of standardized data-based, um, information on golf course care. Um, and so, and as golf expands throughout the country, you have issues obviously facing golfers in California are so different from golfers in, in New York. Um, so you have this moment where with the U S uh, department of agriculture, um, the USGA sort of comes up with and, um, you know, institutes the green section to be um, a place where uh, research on course care and sustainable practices and water usage and all of this, um, they're, they're going to, you know, disseminate this information and sort of be the keepers of that. So that's, again, a fantastic moment that's in, impacted the game so positively throughout the last 100 years. Um, so that's really exciting. And then probably cap it off with, you know, 1952 uniformity in the rules finally being reached between the RNA and the USGA. I mean, talk about a struggle for the, of the century. Um, it's hard. It's hard. It is. <laughs> it's hard to agree, especially when, you know, these rules committees are made up of people with, um, ex you know, mostly legal backgrounds. I mean, every single word has to be correct. Um, you're ruling on, you know, the course and the rules are the two things that really impact how all golfers experience the game of golf. So you've got to get it right. And there's a lot of pressure and there are, you know, differences. Um, and it's just great that they come together and they figure it out and they set this precedent that this is something they're going to continue to try and reach, um, over and over again. Um, and I think a lot of golfers take that for granted, um, these days, like even up until what, 1990, you'd go to Scotland and play with a small ball. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, right. We regulated the ball and what 1931 was the rollback, uh, which was called the balloon yeah. ball in 1932. Right. <laughs> We set our regulations and then we go into like the 1990s until there's yeah. uniformity. It's a, that's really amazing. That's a long yeah, time, folks. A long time. It is. It is. And, and that sort of conversation about the rules, as you can see, is just prominent from its very beginnings everywhere in the game of golf. Um, and it'll be something that's continuously debated, I think, forever. I mean, the rules will never be stagnant. Um, but it's great to see that that sort of cooperation internationally um, is the standard. That's the gold standard is to um, have the game be fair and equitable for everyone everywhere. So it's pretty... I think those are my top moments. <laughs> I love that. I do. I, I The only one I think I'd add just because I'm a, a club junkie oh, yeah. too is the 1938-14 club ruling. So it was, I believe oh, it was nice. written in 36 <laughs> and adopted in 38. And I just think, I, and why I like that is uh, from the story standpoint, I have a, a bunch of news clippings with just professionals losing their mind that they can't have 30 clubs in their bag. I just, there's no way you can play a game with only 14. I mean, these are actual quotes. You can't play golf with 14 clubs in your bag. It's just that the game will start shooting awful scores and OB to blame. And then the scores never really like spike thereafter. Yeah, it's um, it's really it's really interesting how people's perspectives um are so, uh, 
different, especially because, again, maybe 30 years before, you probably only played with nine in your yeah, bag. seven. I mean, right, we, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, Chick Evans in 16 won with seven clubs in his bag, folks. I mean, he right, won the U.S. Open right. and the U.S. Amateur Exactly. Exactly. It's um, it's uh, very different how things shift. And the poor caddies carrying around all those oh, clubs. My yeah. goodness, once you get steel shafts involved, yeah. I mean, game I, over. I, I had to put out a, uh, a, a like a public apology because for years I was blaming Lawson Little for the you know 14 club rule. And I actually found a newspaper article um, that was an interview with the USGA president at the time. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he actually blames it on Walter Hagen. He saw him at Baltusrol, and he had like the caddy was carrying like who knows how many clubs. Let's call it twenty-five to thirty. But a lot of people yeah. didn't know this. Hagen didn't play all those clubs, but he accepted sponsorship money from like five different companies, even though he had his own. So he had you know oh, like so five funny. different brands. He had brands from the UK and American brands. He had LA, uh, what was it? LA Young was his company. And um, yeah, that was the only reason was to take the money. And the poor caddy is like 15 years old with a broken back by the end of the round. I just, you know, <laughs> That's so he wasn't one of the voices for the record. He wasn't one of the you know petitioners yeah. saying no. But like uh, 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 Harry Lighthorse Cooper, um, uh, I mean, his name's kind of a pun because he was one of those people that harried, you know, 30. He was the heavy horse Cooper, right? He had yeah. 20, 30 clubs <laughs> in his bag. So, oh, yeah, man. I just those things I just love. And, and I, I always remind people when we see rules changes coming out. And I know there's a debate over the ball mm-hmm. right now that we're going to hear about. But it's at the end of the day, it's still the game of golf. It's, you know, everyone will make a big fuss about it. And two years later, no one will remember the fight except you and I. <laughs> you know, right. the people who care about history right. are the only people that are going to be like, remember back in 2020 when they rolled back the ball? Oh, gosh, everybody like, yeah, social media. Oh, no, kids, you don't know what social media is. But back 50 years ago, social media was a really big thing. And everybody blew up, you know. So I I just every I I always argue that uh, every argument that you hear now in the game of golf has already happened five times over. It is so true, Connor. <laughs> the I ball mean, goes it, too far. Old... You're playing too many clubs. You know, the courses right. are too long or too short. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, you know, the old, the old phrase that history repeats itself just could not be more true. I mean, these things have been debated over and over again, sort of any argument or subject that you want to take up. Someone's probably already there. talked about it, yeah. even the most obscure ones that you could possibly think of. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sure you know, as playing at a golf club, like even at a golf club, you, you can't please everyone. I mean, try and make move one bunker around on a golf uh, course. We're going through a restoration get... project, so I can speak okay. to that with ease. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. So, um, you know, the golfers are opinionated and, and golfers, golf is a personal experience. So um, everyone has something to say about it. And it's, um, you know, it's there's going to be. In the future with everything, you know, you you make the best decisions possible. You look at everything. You look at all your information and you look at these great people who have discussed and debated them in the past and you um, come up with your arguments and you do you the best you can for the for the greater good of the game, I suppose. Well, 125 years of the USGA and we could only mm-hmm. make it through the earliest years. That's how vast <laughs> the importance of the USGA is to golf, uh, not just here, but around the world. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me on the Talking Golf History Podcast for the 125th anniversary of the USGA. 
You're so welcome, Connor. It was a pleasure. Thanks. I had a blast. Thanks I mean, for, I, I laughed uh, a lot. That's how I judge most yeah. of my podcasts. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It, it's great to bring some of these stories to light that um, are just um, a little out of reach, you know, and it's really fun to talk about them with you. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. All of golf history has a beginning. And while there are a lot of unknowns in golf, like who was the first golfer or what definitively was the first golf course in the world, we don't know. But on this side of the pond, we have a pretty good idea of our history. And I sincerely hope that you enjoy this look back into the early days of golf and the founding of the USGA. This is Connor Lewis, yours in golf history. Thank you for listening.